Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We'll be discussing how Jesus Christ is superior to angels and how salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. We're going to begin our study of the Epistle to the Hebrews this morning. If you want to be turning there, and why don't I open us in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day and this group to be able to gather together and study your word. And I ask that you just open each of our hearts this morning for what we need to hear as we begin our study of the epistle to the Hebrews. We thank you for your word and let it be your words, not my words this morning. And let it have the impact of continuing to transform us into the people you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to begin this letter to the Hebrews. Let me set it up first, as I normally do when we start a new book in the Bible. It's not clear who wrote this letter. Some people think it could possibly be Paul. I won't go into all the arguments, pros and cons, but the arguments against Paul being the writer, there's really two main ones. If you look in chapter 2, verse 3, It basically says that whoever wrote this, they got their information from others who were eyewitnesses. And so that kind of seems like that would rule out Paul because Jesus did appear to Paul personally. In the strongest argument against it being Paul being the writer is in 2 Thessalonians 3.17. And I'll go over there because over there, Paul says, as he's writing Thessalonians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And Paul didn't sign Hebrews. So those are pretty strong arguments that it's not, although there are many biblical scholars that I have very high regard for that say it was Paul. Some say it's Luke. Some say it could be Apollos or Barnabas. There's even some that say it could be Priscilla, who's a female, or even Peter. All we know, really, is that the Holy Spirit wrote it through somebody. That's all we need to know. That's good enough for me. It was probably written around 62 to 65 A.D., although there are some who say it was written after A.D. 70, after the destruction of the temple. I have a hard time getting there. But in any event, about that time and what was happening is there were many Jewish Christians at that time who were slipping back into the rituals of Judaism to escape persecution. This letter is written to the Hebrews, although keep in mind it's also written to us as Christians because it is in the canon of Scripture. But it basically telling the Hebrews to continue to believe in the grace of Christ. Throughout the letter we'll see, even beginning today, how it compares the grace of Jesus Christ to everything else and how Jesus is superior to everything, including the Jewish sacrificial system, which was certainly inadequate. Nothing compares to the grace in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. As we go through, we're going to see there's five warnings that are given. There's various warnings that are given throughout this book. We'll see the danger of neglect when we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There's the danger of unbelief in chapter 3, really chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. 
There's a danger of spiritual immaturity. That's in chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, 20. And then there's the danger of failing to endure. We'll see that when we get to chapter 10, verse 26 through 39. And then the danger of refusing God, and that's in chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. When we go through this, you'll see it's really written to three groups of people. The first group are Hebrew Christians who, as I said, were being persecuted not only by their own Jewish families, but also by Gentile unbelievers. And as I said, many were still hanging on to some of their Jewish rituals, and so he'll address that. The second group are Hebrew non-Christians who were intellectually convinced that Jesus could be the Messiah, but they hadn't spiritually committed to him yet. That's probably what some of the warning passages are for, people like that. We actually see over in 1 John 2.19, let me go over there real quick, people like this that he describes. He says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. So it could be people who profess to be Christians, but they really hadn't committed their heart to Jesus. And then the third group are just Hebrew non-Christians who are not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. They've rejected him. And so as we go through, kind of the key to understanding Hebrews is knowing which group is being addressed at the time. Yes. A lot of the books are titled a location. This is titled a people. Do we know where the audience was that were receiving that? Yeah, that's a great question because it's also not clear if this was written to Jewish Christians in Rome or elsewhere. It does appear that it was a letter that was written to a specific group somewhere, because if you'll flip with me, over, go over to the back, and I'll show you where I get that. Last chapter, chapter 13. Let me find it here. Chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then if you drop down in verse 24, it says, Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints, meaning all the believers, those from Italy greet you. So it's not clear where this group was. It doesn't appear like some of Paul's letters that were letters. They were sent to a church, but then they'd be circulated. It looks like this was sent to one specific group, but we don't know. There's many scholars that say it was probably Hellenistic Jews, meaning Jewish people who spoke Greek. That's what Hellenistic Jews are. And the reason they say that is because much of the quotes from the Old Testament that are included in Hebrews in the original manuscripts, they are quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's believed that it was written to a group of very Greek-speaking Jewish people. That's a good question. Okay, let's see if there's anything else I want to point out. We'll see throughout the theme of the whole book is that Jesus is superior to everything. We'll see that just as we get started this morning. So why don't we begin? I'll begin with verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So he's saying God actually chose to reveal himself to us. And he did it long ago to the fathers. That's probably the Jewish ancestors and the prophets. 
He spoke in the prophets, and he did it in many different ways. He did it in dreams in some cases. With Abraham, it was a dream. With Moses, he spoke to him and gave him the law on the tablets. He spoke through prophets. This time, there were 39 books in the Old Testament. As we saw, I think I showed you this maybe last time, but I'll go over there and show you. 2 Peter 1.21 says that this is how the Bible was written. It says, Peter says, but know this first of all. I'm actually going to start in verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the prophets speak for God, and the Holy Spirit works in and through them to give them the words that are God's words. That's how we get Scripture. And you'll always hear people, when they're referring to Hebrews, they'll say the writer of the Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote this. So he's saying that God chose to reveal himself in many different ways. And what's interesting is Christianity is different from all other religions. All other religions, you're trying to do a bunch of stuff in order to get to God. That's every other religion. Christianity believes God came to us. God chose to reveal himself, and then he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to us. So he came to us. All other religions, as you're working to hopefully earn your way to get to God, and that's what makes Christianity different from all other religions. He says in verse 2, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Through him also he made the world. This is saying that while the Old Testament existed, the Bible was incomplete. Scripture was incomplete until the New Testament was completed. That revealed to us Jesus is God's Son. That was the full and final revelation that we have until Christ comes again. And this actually even says that Christ created the world. He created everything. It was through Christ, you see, through whom also he made the world. Let me show you something. I was going to do it later, but this is on my heart now, so let me show you now. If you'll hold your place here, and I want you to see this, go over to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth Gospel. Go over there. I just want to show you something. And when you get there, put your finger there and just turn to Genesis 1. This is really amazing to me. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? You don't have to go there. You know that's what it says. Now go over to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. Kind of starts just like Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Talking about the word. All things came into being through him. That's what we just read in Hebrews. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, now drop down to verse 14. This is talking about the word, right? That's what we've been talking about. But look, it's really Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So everything came into being through Jesus Christ. Everything. Jesus created everything. Jesus is God. 
Jesus Christ is God. But that's how everything came into being, which is what this is saying here in Hebrews. Go back over to Hebrews. You see, it says, through whom also he made the world. He appointed him heir of all things. So Christ created the world. He created everything. It's not evolution. It was all created by Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and he, meaning the son, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, meaning the father. Nobody can see God the father except Jesus Christ. And he is the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. You see that? It's by his word. He holds everything together. He's the image of God. He is God. He's the image of God the Father. And he brings God's light to us, just as we were reading in first chapter of the Gospel of John just a minute ago. This is the main theme that we're going to see throughout Hebrews, that God revealed himself through his Son, It's sort of been a progressive revelation. The whole Old Testament pointed to the Messiah, pointed to Jesus Christ, which was then fulfilled when Jesus was incarnated, born and became man, 100% man, 100% God. Continuing in verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty, that's the Father, on high. That right hand, that's a place of honor and authority. So after he had paid our debt for our sins, he then sat down. He didn't sit down because he was tired. He sat down because he was finished. He completed what he came to do. It also shows that Christ is in control of history. And by sitting down next to the Father, it also shows that what he did, his sacrifice for us, was acceptable to God the Father. Or he wouldn't have had that place to sit right next to God the Father. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Okay, so now we're going to read some verses that are going to compare Jesus to the angels. And you might say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, the Jews thought angels were the highest and closest to God. And so what the writer here is saying is, look, yeah, you hold the angels in high esteem, They're created beings, but you believe that they are the closest you can get to God? No, he's going to give us examples. Jesus Christ is even above the angels. That's what we're going to read now. Let me talk a little bit here about this inherited a more excellent name than they. What this is talking about is that he finished the work that had to be done. He's still God, but when he returned back to sit at the right hand of the Father, Things were different. I mean, he had holes in his hands from being hung on the cross. He completed his work that God the Father and he and the Holy Spirit wanted to accomplish to provide a pathway for us to reconcile with God. He says in verse 5, For to which of the angels did he, the Father, ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So he's saying Jesus is God. He's equal to God. He's existed from eternity with God. He was with the Father, as we saw. The Word was with the Father, and he became flesh. We saw that in John 1.14. So he's saying, he is his Son, and today I have begotten thee. This is from the second Psalm, verse 7, by the way, is where that comes from, that quote. When he's talking about inherited this more excellent name, and now he's being called the Son, 
this name that he inherited, that's the Messiah. It's inheritance. It's authority, which the Jewish people would understand inheritance. That was very important to their culture. He's going to quote now from 2 Samuel 7.14. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. This is talking about how Jesus is above the angels. He's more superior to the Old Testament covenants and the priests and sacrifices that existed at that time. He is the highest and closest to God. What he's describing is a position in a title. Let me go on, then I'll come back and explain. I want to point out something that some religions believe. They misinterpret these verses. Verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. There is some disagreement among the biblical scholars as to what does this mean and when he again brings the firstborn. Some think it's referring to Christ's second coming. Some think it's no, it was talking about Adam and now Christ. Adam was created being, but Christ is the firstborn. Larry, the um, NIV translation says, and again, comma, when God brings his firstborn into the world. So that grammatically... Changes, right, changes that, correct. I will say that the NIV just usually makes it easier to read and is not a direct translation. So if you go back, what I'm reading from the New American Standard and others like that, it's more of a direct translation. That's somebody taking the position in that to make it easier to read, but that's not necessarily the way the original would have read. Does that make sense? Also, I just wanted to point out, there's others like Jehovah's Witnesses that use this verse as well as a couple of other verses where it's talking about firstborn and begotten. They say, see, this shows that Jesus is also a created being, that he is not God that he's just another created being. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and that's why they believe that, which is not correct at all. Then verse 7, And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? So he's saying, look, Christ is superior. He's going to compare the angels to Christ. And he's saying on the one hand, angels, they're pretty powerful, But they're ministers, they're swift as the wind, they're strong as fire. Yeah, they have power, but now look, he's going to say, but look at Jesus Christ. But of the Son, he says, the Father says, he's saying, on the other hand, look what God the Father says about the Son. He says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So that's the eternal king and ruler saying, on the other hand, yeah, angels are pretty special, but Christ's reign is going to be for eternity. He's existed with God and God the Father for eternity. And this is clear proof that here God the Father is actually acknowledging Jesus as God. That's what he's saying here. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus actually says Jesus and the Father are one. And so Jesus is equal to God. Angels are not eternal. God created them. So he's making this contrast here. Verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, or wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Who are these companions here? 
It could be his angels in heaven. It could possibly even be believers who have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Verse 10, and thou, Lord, the son in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth. We saw that when I showed you in the first part of the gospel of John, Jesus created everything. It says, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. So one day the earth is going to be burned up. When we were studying Second Peter, you can go look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The earth is going to burn up. All the people that are so concerned about global warming and thinking they can do something to change the course of earth are going to be sadly surprised when they see earth burn up. When we read in Revelation 6.14, it says it's going to be rolled up like a worn-out garment or a scroll. And that's what this says here. It says in verse 11, They will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become old as a garment. And as a mantle, thou wilt roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. So creation is going to be changed. And eventually there's even going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But the creator never changes. Men come and go, but Christ is forever and never changes. And that's what he's saying is Jesus Christ is superior to everything. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? And as we saw, this is where Christ is until he'll reign in the kingdom. He's at the right hand of God. By the way, that's taken from Psalm 110. No angel sits at God's right hand, only Jesus. This says everything is going to be subjected to Jesus in the end. Verse 14, talking about angels here, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So you see, Angels are not seated at the right hand of the Father. They are sent out. They are sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation. So angels are ministering to us now and protecting us now. They're doing work right now. Jesus has completed his work. So how do we apply this that we've read today? And just to sort of summarize, and then I'll open it up for any comments you have. Jesus is superior to angels. He's God. He created everything. His word carries out the Father's plans for us and for the world, and he meets all our spiritual needs. He is the Son of God. He's not just a servant or a messenger. Angels worship him. He's a ruler, a king. He loves righteousness, and yet his character is unchanging. He never changes. God has given him authority over everything. And so we should worship him, and we should be thankful for all that he has done for us. We also are told that he will give us everything that we need, and we have everything we need here in Scripture. With that, let me open it up for any questions or comments that you might have this morning. I love the book of Hebrews. We're going to really have some fun studying this. Hey, I like the way you tied it together with Genesis and John and this is not a random kingdom that came into power accidentally because it beat out the other kingdom. This was created by God from the beginning. It was his plan. Jesus was the plan. Jesus was the creator. And then you talked about climate change. You know, what a foolish errand that is that people are chasing that. I mean, Mark 13, 31, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. That's right. And so we need to be on board with Christ's kingdom, Christ's plan. This is all preset. He's telling us what the plan is. He's telling us where we fit in. And then as Christians, he's made us his temple. He's living in us right now, wanting to work in and through us to make an impact on this world that he's created. Then we're going to move into the millennial kingdom and then into the new heaven and new earth with him. So how well are we obeying what he wants us to do now? The challenge shouldn't be producing carbon to save this world. This world's days are numbered. We need to be transitioning our fellow man into the new kingdom exactly. with us. We don't worry about the expiration date of this world. You need to join us getting to the next world just like Noah's people needed to get on the boat with him. <laughs> That's right. And then the door closed, and it started raining. That's good. Larry, to that same point about John and Genesis, one thing you pointed out previously that's interesting to me is Genesis 1, 26. Mm-hmm. Then God said, let us make man in our image yes. after our likeness. So it's, you know, it's a textual evidence that the Holy Trinity was there even in the beginning with, right. the, with the use of the plural. And when you go back at the beginning of Genesis, the first few verses, the Trinity is there too because it's talking about God the Father. In verse 2, it talks about the Spirit of God is there. And we now know that the Word of God is Jesus Christ and created everything. So it's all right there. The Trinity is right there from the very beginning in chapter 1. That's, thanks for pointing that out. That's great. I do pay attention sometimes. You have. <laughs> Larry, because obviously this book is very relevant to Jewish converts who became Christians, how do those even now and how do they even wrestle then with like books like in Genesis where the evidence of the Trinity was there, like let us, but then, you know, they choose not to believe in Jesus. Like how do they wrestle with that contextually? Yeah, their problem is that they continue to believe that the Messiah is a conquering king. That's what they were looking for. They really didn't acknowledge their need for a savior. They believe that because they're from Abraham's blood, that they're good, they're the chosen race, and they're just waiting for the Messiah to come and give them their land back. Okay? That's essentially what their hang-up is. I've spent a lot of time with a number of Jewish people, many of my Jewish friends, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit working through me. I've had some success with a few of them, but generally, man, it's like you just can't get through. You can show them all the verses and they'll go, yeah, that's interesting, but it's just like they're blinded. And it's so sad. My heart just pours out for them. And there's a lot of pressure on them from family. Like, you know, I've got generations, generations going all the way back to Abraham, you know. It's like, well, that's not really true because the first Christians were Jewish. You may be missing out on what God's written here because this is all prophesied. And you take them to passages that talk about the suffering Messiah. And I've had several of them tell me, look, Larry, you say that Jesus is a loving God and God's a loving God. If I missed it on his first visit here, He'll love me enough. You're waiting on his second coming. I'm waiting on his first. If I miss the first, he'll love me enough. And it's like, if you can show me some scripture that says that, good luck. Because you got nothing to hang your hat on. It's just really sad. But many of them will say, well, Jesus was a great prophet. 
well, wait a minute. How can you say that? You're saying Jesus spoke for God, and yet you say he blasphemed. You believe he blasphemed God, and so you killed him. So you can't say he's a great prophet, but deserved to be killed. What do they say? Have you had conversations with your Jewish friends about all of the Old Testament fulfillments that we see in New Testament? Yes. And what do they say to that? Coincident. You mean that one in a trillion yes. chance that everything? Yeah. yeah. Okay. At least I'll say, and I hate talking about my experience because this is about Scripture, but you're asking my experience with Jewish people. I've yet to come across a Jewish person who would say Jesus didn't exist. They believe he was a man and lived here, but that he was just a man. Some will go far enough to say, and he was a great teacher, had some good teachings, but they just won't go far enough to say he's the Messiah. It's an obstacle because it involves an unlearning and an unbelieving of so much belief. Right. That's, that's a wide river to cross. Well, it's similar to so many religions that have generations and generations of teaching, and you try to undo that and point out the errors of some of their beliefs, and it's tough. And love them nonetheless. That's right. All we are called to do is plant the seeds. It's the Holy Spirit that'll do the work. For many of them, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will soften their heart. I've got one guy that I've met with for years and he continues to want to hear more, but keep telling him knowledge isn't going to get you saved, you know? You've got to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Even though this is written to the Hebrews, this is applicable to us. It's applicable to people who believe that they're Christians, but they have a messed up theology, just like I did as a Catholic, thinking it was faith in Jesus Christ, plus I had to do a bunch of works and wouldn't know if I was going to get in until I got there. That's messed up. And yet when you try to even point that out to Catholics, many of them, I'm not saying no Catholics are Christians and no Catholics are saved. I sat in a Catholic church for many years after I became a Christian and would sit there and go, what they're talking about, that's not biblical, that's wrong, that's not right. So I'm not saying that about all of them, but the ones who believe that it's faith plus doing a bunch of stuff, sacraments and everything else, that's not the gospel. That's a different gospel than what I've got. That's a different gospel than what's in the Bible. So they're saved, they just don't know it? No, that I don't know. But if they place their faith in Jesus. But they're also saying that Jesus didn't get the job done. So I don't know. I'm not the judge. I just know that that's essentially what Paul writes about a lot about the Jewish converts, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about this because they started bringing back in their Jewish traditional stuff and rituals thinking they needed to do that too in order to cover the bases, cover the bases and keep their faith, maintain their salvation. That's not the gospel. And Paul says, if you've got a gospel different than the one we're teaching, then that's not the gospel. Now, it's between them and God. I struggle with that. If they believe Jesus Christ came and died and buried and rose again to pay for their sins, they got that part right. But then why are you saying he didn't get the job done and you got to do a bunch of stuff? So that's between them and God. I would prefer to go with exactly what God says, which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever t spoken with Catholics about Ephesians 2, 8, and 10? Every time. 
every time. That's what did it for me. And what is the reply? They say, well, that's not what I was taught. And I say, yeah, that's not what I was taught as a Catholic either. But you can either go with what you were taught in tradition, or you can go with what's written in this book. And I suggest you read this book so that you can understand what God says and then get right with God. I face that all the time. But that's probably why I go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with this group so much because that's what opened the curtains for me when I was 13 years old and somebody sat down. I told them how I believed in Jesus Christ, but I had no peace because I was going to confession every week. I knew I was going to hell. And they said, well, then you're not a Christian if you think you're going to hell. They go, no, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I just can't live my life the way he wants, so I know I'm going to hell. I said, no, that's not what the Bible says. And they showed me the verses in the Bible, and it was like, oh, my gosh, what peace came over me. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone, and I had peace for the first time in my life, and I've never looked back. And it was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that really helped me understand about the grace of God. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.